<clears throat> Today is May 15th, 2022, and I'm sharing the story about my coming to the path. But before I do that, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge um, the tragedy, tragedy that took place yesterday in Buffalo. It's disturbing. It's even more disturbing because it was uh, racially motivated. My name is Desiree, yes. My name is Desiree Jaeger-Fine. Thank you, Keith. Okay, so I'm Desiree, and I moved with my wife here to Rochester last November so that I can devote myself to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So this is actually a really good point in time to talk about my coming to the path. We both quit our jobs to be here, and my friends and family are a little puzzled about what looks to them an utterly crazy move probably is. It's also a good time to talk about my path because my mom is currently visiting me from Germany and so we were able to talk about my childhood. So part of what I'm telling today is from my memory and other parts are from um, memory of my mom. I divided the talk into three parts because I'm German and I like organization. And the first part is called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I asked my mom at the beginning of the week, so mom, how was I as a child? And she said, oh, mein Schatz, which means my treasure. You were a beautiful, beautiful pain in the ass. That does sound like me. So I was born in 1981 in Germany, in the home of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The town is called Bad Wildungen, but don't try to pronounce it. Tony and I are married for nine years and 10 years together, and she still doesn't know how to pronounce Bad Wildungen. It's a picturesque little city village. It has a Baroque castle enthroned on a hilltop opposite a half-timbered small, timbered small town. I can see the castle from my mom's kitchen. In the 16th century, Count Philip um, lived there with his beautiful daughter, Margaret. She died very young and was presumably poisoned. And it is this setting that the brothers Grimm took to make her destiny serve as the model for the fairy tale Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It is a beautiful little village and it's a giant playground for children. It is surrounded by, by woods and it is actually located on the fairy tale trail. So children are encouraged to go out and explore. We spend a lot of time in the woods. Even our walk to school is through deep, deep woods. My father to this day rides to the tennis court with a mountain bike through the woods. And whenever I visit my family, I have to go straight from the airport to my nephews. They greet me and they serve me coffee. They never serve me coffee, only then. And give me about 10 minutes while standing there impatiently to me until they say, okay, when are we ready for our walk? It doesn't matter whether it's snowing, raining, 100 degrees or pitch dark. They are prepared with equipment. And even though I'm jet lagged, I'm always um, excited to go on an adventure with them. When they were younger, they showed me some mysterious tree trunk or cave they found uh, during the months where we were apart. And now that they're teenagers, we mostly talk about how stupid their parents are. But it doesn't matter what we do as long as we do so in the woods. So it was not at all strange when my dad asked me one Christmas Eve, little one, do you want to go into the woods with me? Oh, sure, dad, what are we doing? 
we will be searching for the Christkind. Christkind means Christ child. So this needs a little bit of explaining. The Christkind, the Christ child, is the traditional Christmas gift bringer in Germany. It is sometimes depicted as an angelic-like figure with, with golden long hair, curly hair, but the point is that no child has ever seen the Christ child. My family is not religious at all. We celebrate Christmas as a tradition, but we don't have any religious elements in it. The Christ child was simply part of our Christmas fairy tales. But while it may not have religious element, my father always made sure that it was an evening of wonder. And searching for the Christ child in the woods on Christmas Eve is a tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation, and my brother kept it up with his four children. One of the reasons for doing so is to get the child out of the house while the mother puts the presents under the tree. So children never see how the presents appear under the tree because it was brought in secret by the Christkind. So in case you ever find yourself in Germany on Christmas Eve and you have to search for the Christ child, here are the rules. Number one, you cannot ask any questions. You cannot talk. You must try to walk really silently without making too much noise because the Christ child would get scared. And third, you must look intently. So we went into the woods that started right behind our house and remaining quiet is um, impossible was for me and of course for my nieces and nephews um, in, in this day and age. Children are naturally full of questions. What am I looking for, dad? How does it look? And my dad was very patient and always saying, I don't know, just look. But dad, where should I look? Should I look at the sky, on the ground, in the tree? I don't know, just look. Of course, children find this rather frustrating. How am I supposed to find the Christ child if I have no idea where to look, up or down, left or right, or what to look for? So I was trotting after my dad and I tried to look intently into the pitch dark. I tried to hear sounds or smell something. And I was never scared. I mean, it was in the thick of the woods, in the dark, we had a little flashlight. I was excited. It was always a moment where anything was possible. The silence in the woods was brimful of potential. My father made me believe that we could both find something very, very special if we just stayed silent and looked intently. Every first step, few steps, my father would stop in his tracks. He would hold up his finger, break the silence and say, What is this? What is this? He wouldn't actually point at anything. We remain unmoving, stock still, barely breathing, just letting the echo of the question fill the woods. I can still see my nieces and nephews when we did that with them, the eyes wide open. It's just fascinating to see kids like that. Then after a while, he would break the intensity of the moment and would continue walking. And then only to stop again. <gasps> what is this? and then he kept walking. When we returned to the house, the Christmas tree was lit and the presents were now lying under it. And he said, oh, it was already here, we missed it. Well, maybe next year. It took me a few years to learn how to properly search for the child, Christ child. At the beginning, I talked way too much, go figure. I was very often annoyed at my father for not giving me any hints. Come on, just give me a clue. And very often I was disappointed that we didn't find it again. But as I got older, I understood that my father, of course, knew that we would never find the Christ child. 
and I knew that there was no Christ child. And this made the adventure even more special. Actually, that is when it became really, really special. Because then I wasn't looking for anything. We weren't just looking aimlessly, but we looked intently. We didn't look for anything particular. When we stopped and my father raised his finger and he left me standing there in the echo of, what is this? He taught me to wonder and sit completely comfortable in the unknown. The words are not important. It doesn't matter what he, what he asked, whether it was what is this or whatever he would have come up with. What matters was the question mark. When we paused and rested in the silence, we questioned the universe. We opened up completely. The trees were I, the sounds were I, the universe was I. And when we continued walking, you could almost feel the contraction again. It's like, Voop! you become father and daughter in the woods again. Well, with every good fairy tale, there are also some not so nice parts. I had to go to school eventually, and whew, I hated school. The teachers kept telling me everything. The books were full of answers, uh, things I had to remember, and everything all of a sudden made sense. Everything could be explained. And I was never allowed to ask questions that didn't have an answer. I was so terrible in school that I actually had to repeat a bunch of classes um, because my grades were just really, really bad. Life became more logical, became reasonable, and with it, I got very sick. Teachers thought that they were giving me something special. They were giving me an education. They were giving me knowledge. While I thought they were taking everything away from me. They were taking the unknown. My parents divorced when I was about nine years old and we were flat broke. So my family comes from, um, from Naples, from the south of Naples and immigrated to Germany when she was nine years old. And she never finished school because she had to take care of her six siblings. So when my parents divorced, my, my mom didn't have a school um, degree and uh, we had a lot of debt from, um, that they accumulated during, the, um, during their marriage. They were married for 20 years. And there was a lot going on during that time. My, my father and I, um, we had a lot of fights and I didn't speak with him for two years. My brother and my father did not speak with each other for over 20 years. They just recently started to communicate again. During that time, I developed skin rashes on the soles of my feet, in the palms of my hands, and in my face. The rash turned to blisters. They opened up and became infected. My feet were particularly bad. The infection started to eat away at my feet up to the bones. There was pus coming out and blood dripping from my feet. It was so bad that I couldn't walk anymore and I had to use a wheelchair. I really didn't like the wheelchair, especially sitting at home in a wheelchair was was terrible for me. So I learned to walk really efficiently um, on my hands and knees. I was carried around where there were steps or moved around in a stroller or a wheelchair in public. Sometimes when the situation got a little better, I could walk with crutches on the heels of my feet. They were not open yet. And I lived like that for about three years. I must have been 10, 11 um, during that time, 10, 11, 12. 
The doctors had no idea what it was and why they could not get the wounds to close. We went from doctor to doctor to city to city all over Germany. We tried every medication under the sun, but nothing worked. One doctor suggested that rather than wrapping the feet up in bandages, we should leave them unwrapped in the hope that with exposure to air, they would heal. So I had to leave my feet over a bucket when I watched TV for the blood and pus to flow into. It didn't take too long for flesh flies to start sitting on my feet like they do on dead animal corpses, and they started nibbling away at the wound. So of course, I developed blood poisoning and spent a good amount of time in the hospital. It's, it, was, it was terrible. When my mom talks about this today, she still gets tears in her eyes. The doctors eventually concluded that it was psychological. I was indeed very much in distress, but not because my parents divorced or the financial trouble that we had. That was, of course, very sad, but it was almost noise to me. My distress was much more fundamental than that, and I had absolutely no means to express myself. Now I know, in retrospect, that I forgot to wonder. Life became like, like a 2D movie. Everything was flat and sterile, and I knew that I was not seeing life in its full depth. But everyone just told me that I was just being too sensitive and I just had to toughen up a little bit. My feet healed eventually after many years of pain, but the yearning, the, the, the psychological pain, the yearning for the unknown, that, that never left me up until I found Zen. The wonder that I had as a child in the woods, the yearning for that, that, that never left me. I felt really vulnerable during that time. When you're 12 years old and being carried around, you just feel awful. And the only way I knew out of this situation was to take charge. My mom taught me, when my, if my dad taught me wonder, my mom taught me discipline and that I could do whatever I want to do if I really imply myself. So I took charge and as a teenager, I started to convert this yearning for the unknown into yearning for material goods because I believed what the adults around me taught me. I thought the solution is simply in power, fame and fortune. So with about 13, I decided that I wanted to be a famous actress. And when I decide on something, I very much see it through. I was about 13 or 14 when I started auditioning, and it took me many years of rejection until I started being cast for TV shows. First, I had tiny little one-line roles in crime shows, but it slowly, slowly over the years got more involved. Then with 19 or 20, I finally had my breakthrough. I was cast as a main character in a terrible, but very famous soap opera on a major channel in Germany. It is still on TV today after some 20 years. And every once in a while, they do reruns of episodes in which I played. I stayed on that show for about two years or two and a half years. My life looked great. I was going to the studios every morning. So you drive into the studios and then there are fans waiting at the gate and you're giving autographs. Then you go into the studio, you go to the makeup, you have your own makeup artist, you have someone for your hair, you have someone for your clothes. You're really pampered. I had it. I had it fame and fortune. I was quite famous for German standards, not for Hollywood standards, but for German standards, I was quite famous, which meant that 
to be in a public was difficult. I was recognized everywhere and, you know, it, it may look really nice from the outside, but when you're buying underwear, you don't want people to stare at you or take pictures of you while you choose your underwear. Even when I traveled abroad, I was recognized by German tourists, and even though it's a tiny country, those German tourists are everywhere. I spend my evening with a lot of celebrities and hip parties. I went to movie premieres, and excuse the name dropping, but I just want to give you a sense of who the people were that I hung out at that time. So I went to the movies with Harrison Ford, with Drew Barrymore, with Cameron Diaz, and I even met for his party for his first album, uh, Justin Timberlake. These were the people I hung out with um, every weekend. It was a really, really cool and exciting time. Eventually I left the soap opera to try to jump off the soap opera image and make it into real TV, real shows. And I acted in a few crime shows here and there and then I was cast as a main character for a movie. And my goal had always been to see myself, to see my name in the credits on a movie theater screen. And not just anywhere, but in the top of the movie credits. The premiere of that movie was when I was 25. I finally made it on a movie screen. I was sitting in the front aisle with the producers, the other actors during the premiere. I was so proud and I was so miserable. I was supposed to be happy. That's what I expected and that's what everyone told me, but I wasn't. The yearning was still there and I just felt completely, utterly defeated. So I called my manager the next day after the premiere and I said that I wanted out. And this was of course a huge disaster given that we had a lot of promotion to do for the movie and all the contracts that I was involved in. But I was done, I wanted out. I blew all my contracts, one of which was with um, Sony Music, because I had produced and recorded some of the songs that were in the movie. It was a huge mess, lawyers, I blew all the contracts. The movie won 25 international awards, and I didn't care. I actually only just found out that, they won 20, that the movie won 25 awards, because in preparing for this talk, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It has been 15 years since then, I am not recognized on the streets anymore, especially not with my new hairstyle. But every once in a while, my mom or friends call me to tell me that there is a rerun of something on TV. So I left the entertainment industry and decided that I wanted to do something more down to earth. So I went to law school. I studied law in Germany. I started working at PricewaterhouseCoopers in the legal department. And then I won the green card for the U.S. in the lottery. So the U.S. gives away 55,000 green cards every year through a lottery. You play it one year and then you wait about a year until you receive the news that you either won it, either won it or you didn't. So I had just started working as PricewaterhouseCoopers and all of a sudden I won the green card. So I very much wanted to go to the U.S. It's like a little fed up with Germany. Not because Germany is not a great place to live, but I just... I just didn't see myself there. I wanted to go to the US. So I decided to become a lawyer in New York. I had to study law again. I had to take the bar exam again in New York. I became admitted as a lawyer in New York. 
and I quickly realized that I felt just as shitty as I always felt. My life was, my life is, pretty darn amazing. I am very proud of my accomplishments, but I was unfulfilled. I was suffering amidst this wonderful, amazing life of mine. And not only was I suffering, but I felt terribly guilty about feeling this way. I felt so ungrateful for all the luck I had in this life. Let alone, I was, I was healthy, I had a beautiful wife, I had a beautiful apartment in New York City. It was just wonderful, and I just felt like a complete, honestly, a complete shithead. I still did not understand that life was trying to teach me a lesson, so I changed again. I said, okay, it must be some other thing. I have to do something else. So I decided that rather than practicing law, I will be an entrepreneur. So I built a website, a social network for international lawyers, and by build, I mean that I designed it and I coded the entire network by myself. I taught myself to code over the summer and built the, the entire network of something like a mix between Facebook and LinkedIn, um, but just for international lawyers who were studying in the United States. I promoted the website. Um, I don't know how many members it eventually had, but after two years, um, I was bought out by a big company. Um, and there I had it. I was bought out, I got the money, and uh, that was exciting for about five minutes. And then again, I was lost and sad. So I changed again, so I said, okay, now I'm gonna start writing, I'm gonna become a writer, and I'm gonna publish books. So I published three books, and eventually, I stopped chasing prestige and money and I said, you know what, I'm just gonna get a plain old job in law school and just settle down. So I got a really good position with great benefits at Brooklyn Law School. Part of my job entailed that I had to travel the world to um, recruit students. Um, and I really traveled to great, great places all over the world. I was basically gone um, every month. But even that still didn't satisfy me. So this time, it was before the pandemic, maybe 2019, about 2018, I was at my wit's end. I was, I was at my end. I moved heaven and earth over and over and over again. And I was successful under you know, standard, standards that society gives gives you. My parents were proud, my family was proud, and I was even envied by other people. But I was just so, so utterly miserable. And what was even worse is that I had no idea what to do, because I thought, I can't keep going on like this. I mean, what on earth am I supposed to do more? So in my desperation, I started looking into various religions. So I was, I grew up as um, in the tradition Roman Catholic, since my mom comes from the south of Italy. But again, we were never really religious. It was just more traditional. And my grandmother is very, very religious. Um, she goes to church every week and you see all the crosses in her apartment. And my grandma and I are very, very close. So Christianity was always a part of me. Um, so naturally, I started looking into Christianity first. And then I looked into Judaism because Tony, my wife, is, um, is, is Jewish. And we even spoke to a rabbi, um, but it never truly clicked. They always gave me answers. It is like this, and it's like that, and you have to believe this, and then all will be well. But that just 
didn't do it for me. So by desperation, I started learning about quantum mechanics. And that's when I slowly discovered the unknown again. There was this spark of wonder again. If you ever want to get your mind in a twist, look at quantum mechanics. It makes no sense. It's, it's, it's great. I started looking at the most mundane things with new eyes, quantums, quantum eyes, if you will. I didn't understand anything, and it was so exciting. I went from this book to that book, and somehow I ended up with a book on Zen. I now really don't remember which was the first, and it was not Three Pillars of Zen. I, that came much later. Um, I, I just don't remember which one was the first. And I read that book, and I didn't understand a single thing. It made no sense whatsoever. I didn't know what they were saying. It was awesome. I had countered Buddhism along the way many, many times. For example, one producer for, I'm not sure whether it was for the, for the soap opera, for the TV channel, or for, for the movie, he had given me a book he, on Buddhism and he inscribed it and he said, you, you should read this book. But whenever I looked into Buddhism, I was immediately turned off by the word suffering. Of course, because I didn't really fully comprehend the significance of the word, but also because I was suffering and I didn't want to hear more about it. I wanted to get away from the suffering. So I didn't want to read on suffering when I was already suffering. So I just pushed Buddhism aside. And I read quite a couple of books on Buddhism, but I was always very hesitant to go in, in that direction. Before I started reading the book on Zen, I had started sitting already. At first, I started just sitting in a chair on the sofa for 10 minutes. And I started sitting without having any idea of what I was doing. I never learned to meditate. I didn't have a specific um, a practice in mind, or, uh, something I would say, or focusing on my breathing, nothing. I just that, sat there doing nothing or thinking anything. I didn't really want anyone barking in my ear how to do this and how to do that. I just wanted to sit in silence. It was aimless and pointless and it was exactly what, my, what I needed at that moment in time, and still do. In my desperation, I was naturally drawn to sitting, was naturally drawn to the silence. I looked into a couple of Zen centers, but it never really clicked. I very much operate from, from my tummy, and there are no, no reasons why it never clicked. It just, it just never really clicked until I found this beautiful place. And, um, Tony and I are arguing who found it first. So Tony said she found the Zen Center first. I'm pretty sure I found it first, but um, we're still arguing about that. And I started sitting on Zoom during the pandemic. So I am a generation Zoom when it comes to um, the Rochester Zen Center. I started sitting on Zoom during the pandemic and after my first finding your seat with Donna, I started sitting every day at seven in the morning and seven in the evening come hell or high water. In two years, I may have missed a handful of, of, of sittings. I did my first four-day online session shortly after I started sitting, maybe a week or two weeks after I started sitting, and I spoke with Truman on the phone, and he told me, just take one round at a time. Don't think ahead. 
which was really great advice that I, of course, completely ignored. The first round was, oh, this is fantastic. Oh, I love it. And about 20 seconds later, I was like, oh, my God. What am I doing here? I had set up my, um, my apartment. So we were fortunate enough to have two places, one in the city and one um, a house in the Hudson Valley. And so I went to the Hudson Valley to completely isolate myself for, for, for online sessions. Um, I had a pretty strict schedule besides the, the sitting schedule. Um, I didn't have TV or my phone was, was shut. I did, wasn't allowed to read or write. The only thing I was allowed to do was clean the house, which Tony really very much loved. And Tony stayed behind in the city. And so the first sessions that I did with the Rochester Zen Center, I was completely isolated um, in the woods of the Hudson Valley, and it was um, an intense, intense, intense um, experience. I'm very, actually, very grateful for, for those sessions. They, they were fantastic. I had my first Dokusan with Roshi at this first online four-day session, and I was really nervous. I didn't know what Dokusan was, and um, I was nervous because I feared that when I talked to him, that he would start giving me answers and tell me how things are. And I really did not want answers. I did not want him to tell me anything. And of course, he didn't tell me anything. Um, as you know, this is sometimes ooh, frustrating. You wish the teachers would throw you a little bone. But teachers, good teachers, in their infinite compassion, they let you sit in the dark, all alone, the most beautiful place to be. When I started sitting, I feel like this young girl in the woods again. I am completely in the dark. I am not knowing, not understanding. I am just wondering. I am questioning intensely with my whole being. What is this? What is this? I don't have anything anymore. All I have left is my wonder, directed at nothing and for no reason. And now my life has depth, depth, infinite depth. I am this tiny little girl with very, very long hair down to my ass, asking, what is this? And I'm not asking with my mouth, I'm asking with my entire being. I'm not a famous actress anymore, or a director of international programs, or a lawyer. I am no one, I know nothing, and I am so happy. Not knowing, not knowing makes me smile. I spent a month training last July here at the center and after my first in-person seven-day session in July last year, I knew what lay ahead. And Tony knew right away when she saw me after being apart for one month at the train station in Albany. I picked her up there. In the car ride um, home to New York City, she said, um, we are moving to Rochester, aren't we? <laughs> and she said, we're gonna do this so that you can devote yourself She said, we're going to move to Rochester so that you can devote yourself to the Dharma, the center, and your practice. 
we sold all that we owned so that we can collect all the money together. Tony quit her job. She works at Fordham Law School in the city, and she had to quit her job so that she can be with me here. I had quit mine already. I was so done with it. And we moved up here within two months. So in November, we arrived here. We're still trying, uh, uh, trying to find our way through this, the training schedule and Tony quitting her job and trying to find her new footing in this new life. But we didn't really make a decision to come here. We, are, we almost simply, we simply acknowledged a fact. And now I'm in training since, since January. There is an openness in me that I haven't had in maybe 31 years. And there is this intense love for all of you. Oh my God, I love you all so very much. And this coming from a German is woof. It really means something. We are all pretty blessed sitting here and we all have so, so much. But if we had nothing else, we would always have the question, what is this? The question is the answer. I leave you with one of my favorite quotes um, from Einstein. They say it's from Einstein. I'm not sure if it really is from him, but let's say it's from Einstein. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. And this is how I came to the path and I think we have plenty of time for questions, should, should, you, should you have some. Any questions, comments? Please don't be shy. Thank you. It looks like you'll be sticking with us for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It is. Yes, it is. That's the that's the plan. So, well, we don't have much options now because you know we we sold everything, we quit our jobs, so we're pretty much committed. Um, but we're committed much more than that. It's not just because our life changes. We're committed because. We both want to be here. Tony wants to be here for me, obviously. Um, and I want to be here. I want to be here for the center. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the years to come. Of course, you never really know. But for today, I wake up every morning and I just feel so, so happy to come here training, even though I'm very tired, and just, just do this work. 
it has more meaning than anything I've ever done in my life and you saw that I've done a lot and it's the practice but wow it's the people it's the people oh my god it's those beautiful 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 people you Wayman <laughs> Yeah, thank you for asking that, Errol, because not everything is so easy as I may, may have made it sound. Um, um, we struggle, we've had in the last months a few moments where, I don't want to say where we fought, but where we had discussions about how do we keep our relationship going? How do we keep a wonderful, caring marriage while at the same time pretty much devoting everything I have um, for the Zen Center? And it, it is quite difficult, and we're still trying to figure that out. We're sort of trying to take one step at a time. Um, I have actually asked um, Roshi for an adjustment in the schedule so I can spend one evening more at home um, and one day during the day at home on Saturdays because Tony works, still works at Fordham, so she doesn't have off on Monday. And because I'm not on staff, I'm, I'm just a trainee. Um, Roshi was very understanding and, and Sensei were very understanding and open to that. Um, we still have to figure it out. Um, I, I'm an optimist. I know it will work because we both want to make it work. Um, but we also know that it's going to be a little bit of trial and error in the next few months um, to make it work. As much as I'm devoted to this place, there is no doubt about it. I love my wife very much, and she deserves to have um, the life that, that, that she wants to have as well. It's not just about what I want. Desiree, how has the uh, visit with your mother been? Oh, thank you, Keith. Yeah, that has been interesting. So my family turns out thinks that I'm in the cult, which I thought that they would think that. And um, they were quite worried, actually. So they were trying to figure out, okay, how do we determine whether, whether she is indeed in a cult? How would you know? I mean, they live across the Atlantic Ocean. They just hear you know, the things that I say, and then they create this picture of, of, of what I'm doing here. And, you know, when we step back and look at it from the outside, it, it looks interesting. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's so, so my mom, when I told her that I'm going to work at, train at the Zen Center, she said, okay, so you're giving up your, your great job at Brooklyn Law School, and then you're going to work there and do what? I'm like, oh, mom, I'm going to work in housekeeping. It's great. And so, so what are you doing in housekeeping? And, you know, clean the toilets and you, you do the laundry and said oh okay so now she's here and um, we went to tape and mill I showed her tape and mill and um, she's starting to open up a little bit but she's very careful she's she's just afraid um, 
she she doesn't know much about Buddhism. She doesn't know much about uh, um, uh, practice. She's she's very much in this Christian tradition, and and anything outside of that is is very very scary. Um, but at the very least, she just she just lets me lets me do lets me go along the path. But she has both eyes wide open. So I'm going to bring her here to Arnold Park in the next few days so that she can meet Keith. Lovely Keith and everyone else here. Um, and I'm sure over the years to come, my family will come down and will realize that I'm just the same person as I was before, maybe a little less bitchy, and I think everyone would be happy about that. You said that there, you went into quantum mechanics, <laughs> and you read a book first. Would that happen to be the Tao of physics? No, actually, that came much later. Okay. No, so I started to be really smart about it, and I read, I think I started reading a textbook on quantum mechanics. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what I was reading. It made no sense. But I actually, I think I went so overboard with it because I didn't want to understand anything. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I was so fascinated about this topic that Tony wrote to um, one of the physicists, uh, he's very famous, it's not Neil deGrasse Tyson, but another one who works at um, Columbia University. And because I was so obsessed with it, she wrote to him um, and said, would you have 10 minutes to spend with my wife to talk about quantum mechanics <laughs> and the universe? And the secretary wrote back from Columbia University and said, well, unfortunately, he doesn't have time to talk about the universe. What's his name? I forgot. And then, um, but he said, she said, here are two VIP tickets for a talk that he gave in the city. Um, and so we went to that talk uh, that was all about quantum mechanics. Poor Tony had to sit through it for two hours. Um, mm. um, but I read the Tao of Physics much later, um, much, much, much later. But I read that and I read also the, um, the Dancing Wooly Masters. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I am the lucky one. <laughs> Any other questions? I just want to say I'm glad you're here. Martha, thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> Keith, we're a team. <laughs> So I guess we're reciting the full vows. Keith? Okay, we'll stop. <laughs>